Wretched Radio begins in three, two, one. I want more to feel free and tell them that we love them. I've looked at clear cuts in burnt forest and I've felt outraged. Ah! We are the crowning glory of God's creation, and all of nature was made for us. Nature is more productive because of us, not less. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Hey, did you hear the news? Great Britain has a new Christian prince. God of compassion and mercy, whose son was sent not to be served but to serve. Give grace that I may find in thy service perfect freedom, and in that freedom, knowledge of thy truth. This is a wretched radio. Perhaps you uttered audibly, hold on, skinny boy. It was the coronation of a king, not a prince. But I would like to suggest to you what you perhaps witnessed over the weekend is akin to what is actually being called for Today in the United States of America, if you've been following the conversation, it's a hot one on Christian nationalism. Perhaps you're familiar with Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. In Chapter 7, he actually calls for a Christian prince. That's right. Stephen Wolf defines Christian nationalism. It is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. That is the leading proponent of what is being called Christian nationalism today in the U.S. of A., telling us that this form of America requires a Christian prince. If we are going to have a Christian nation, we need a Christian prince. That is what he calls for regarding civil government and the, quote, great man that he calls the Christian prince. He claims that he's building on John Calvin. This is what Stephen Wolf wrote about a Christian prince. The prince in America, unlike the church minister, is a mediator, a vicar of God in outward civil affairs. That's a lot. The prince, unlike the church minister, is a mediator, a vicar of God in outward civil affairs. So uh, the title vicar of God is applied to a civil magistrate for civil affairs. This is from Stephen Wolfe. As Calvin said, civil rulers represent the person of God as whose substitutes they in a matter act. For this reason, the prince is called a small g God in scripture. He has, as Calvin said, a sacred character and title. In a sense, we see God in the magistrate. That is being forwarded and being widely accepted, or at least increasingly widely accepted in evangelical circles. And I would like to suggest to you, we saw what that looks like in Great Britain over the weekend. Because since King Henry VIII, he was, he was, determined that it is the king who should be the head of the national church, the Church of England. We have seen the king or the queen play the role of the head of the Anglican Communion. In other words, there was a blending of church and state. If you recall, historically, a bunch of dissenters. We call them the Puritans. 
some would call them Baptists, they were being persecuted by whichever king happened to be in power today and by the Anglican Communion because the Anglican Communion was the national Christian endorsed faith. What did they do? They scattered to America and a new constitution was drafted that indicated there should be a separation of church and state. Today, however, there are people who are saying, no, actually, there does need to be some sort of a blending. Why? Because Christ is sovereign over all. Therefore, shouldn't he be sovereign over the government? And to that, I would say he already is. It is my opinion that those who love to say, because Christ is sovereign over everything, therefore, there needs to be a Christian prince or somehow the church needs to be informing the state about civil laws. That's a low view of sovereignty, as if Christ isn't sovereign over Joe Biden. If we don't have a Christian prince, Christ isn't being sovereign. Is that what we're to understand? It seems to me that he is. Christ was sovereign over, you name your favorite fascist murderer. He's sovereign over everything, no matter what sort of a job they are doing. G3 Ministries, it appears, are launching a series of articles that I was really heartened to see. Tackling the subject, I think, amicably, stating, hey, this is a conversation among friends, but also recognizing that should it be that it becomes difficult to work together in unity, some sort of division would be necessary. Josh Bice, he wrote the article, The Different Shades of Christian Nationalism. He wrote this, Christians should pursue unity when possible, but I likewise believe it's possible to disagree on the issue of Christian nationalism without unnecessarily fracturing friendships. Amen to that. Those who hold the issue of Christian nationalism to a higher degree of essentials may press this to a necessary point of division. And in such cases, although it's not my intention, I would concur. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. But Josh Bice is speaking out about it right now. He wrote this. I embrace the idea set forth in the first paragraph of the 1689 London Baptist Confession in chapter 1 on Holy Scripture regarding the sufficiency of Scripture for faith and life and obedience to God. Chapter 24 of the civil magistrate. This is now some history on how did America become the form of government that it is, at least in part, regarding the civil magistrate, the relationship to the church, not having a state-endorsed religion because the founding fathers realized that hasn't been working out so swell in Great Britain or really around Western Europe. This is from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Paragraph one, God has armed them with the power of the sword. This is the government, of course, for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. Bice writes, notice that there is nothing stated about the keys. What is he talking about? The keys of the kingdom, binding, loosing. In other words, ecclesiastical matters. In other words, church discipline, church theology issues. The London Baptist Confession makes a distinction. It only references the sword for the civil magistrate. Therefore, 
any conflating of these two responsibilities, keys and sword, would be a contradiction to Scripture. And he quotes Romans 13. The writers of the 1689 LBC omitted a paragraph that was inside of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This was a Reformed Confession, most certainly, but it's different. They, the, the London Baptist Confession has, there's other differences, but this is a big one. This one is substantial. The Westminster Confession dealt with the role of the magistrate in overseeing various powers to preserve order, peace, truth, worship, and discipline of the church. That is why you saw King Charles being coronated in a very religious ceremony, because that is his role. He is, at least presumably on paper, I don't know how much of a role he plays in reality, but he is supposed to be the defender of the faith, the Anglican communion faith. Why? That's what the Westminster Confession calls for, that the magistrate that would be in power, would preserve order, peace, truth, worship, and discipline of the church. So if you like the idea of what is being called a Christian prince, Great Britain has one. His name is King Charles, who apparently would prefer to be called the defender of faith, not the faith. I don't know what his profession of faith is inside of the lengthy liturgy. For the coronation, he did have to profess to be a Protestant believer. Now, we don't know the sincerity of his profession. We certainly hope it is. But I would ask you this question. Would you like King Charles to be the one who is responsible for worship and discipline of the church? Your church? That's what Great Britain currently has. Now, the Baptists said, uh, no, we want religious liberty for the church, rather than encouraging the civil magistrate to take hold of both the sword and the keys. What we are seeing in Great Britain with the coronation of the king gives us reason to start asking some questions about at least a form of Christian nationalism. Do we really want a Christian prince? Do we want a King Charles to be the one who determines how we worship? Didn't we just see how the magistrate told us to not worship during COVID? They would be making those decisions in the future. They would be making other decisions in the future. And there are some that are saying that's exactly what we need. I would suggest to you that is exactly what we have seen in Great Britain since 1534, give or take. And we've seen the results there. Why would we want to try to duplicate them here? Uh, the coronation of Prince Charles gives us reason to study our history on the relationship between church and state, which we will do next on Wretched Radio. Sorry to ask you to do some arithmetic, but this is some math that will encourage you and make you very, very happy. This is one testimony of a mother who chose life because she saw her own baby, courtesy of an ultrasound from Preborn. 
I was terrified. I really didn't know what to do. The first time I saw the ultrasound, I was just amazed. I was like, oh my gosh, is that my baby? And I, like, I heard her heartbeat and I, I just, I just fell in love. If I could care about my daughter this much, if I could love my daughter this much, how much does God love me? Now take that one testimony and multiply it by 54,253 because that is the number of babies that were saved last year because of ultrasounds at pre-born centers. Would you please help us grow that number by providing as many ultrasounds as possible at preborn.org slash wretched preborn.org slash wretched. Hey, thank you so much for listening to Wretched Radio today. You know, we're just down here every day trying to spread the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we can't do it alone. We produce the content. We need you to listen to the content. And so we are thankful and grateful for you listening to all of the things that we're able to produce. But now we're asking you to prayerfully consider taking the next step and becoming an ongoing monthly gospel partner. See, reaching millions of lost souls with the life-changing gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ no small task. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, be on the alert, stand firm, be strong. We've got to stand firm and we've got to stand firm together sharing the truth. And that's where you come in. When you become an ongoing monthly gospel partner, you're not only keeping the lights on around here, but you're also equipping us to create more compelling, efficient, and theologically sound content. Just visit wretched.org slash donate or text the word wretched to the number 44321. Wretched. Amazing. Amazing grace, amazing gospel. How's inflation been treating you if costs for health insurance are skyrocketing in your home? Would you please visit MediShare.com slash wretched. Affordable biblical health sharing. Christians paying for other Christians' medical bills, which means you don't have to worry where the money is going for bad stuff. Second of all, you can save on average $500 per month. And finally, MediShare, it's the gold standard for healthcare sharing for more than 25 years. It works, and the members, including myself and Mrs. Friel, love it, which is why their customer satisfaction rate is double traditional health insurance. If inflation has got you down, call up the people at MediShare, 844-34-BIBLE or MediShare.com slash wretched. Know your reformers. Ulrich Zwingli was a Swiss reformer who pioneered expository preaching, introduced the regulative principle, and brought a republican government to Switzerland. He fought against the Roman Catholic Church for theological and political independence and died in battle. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. The Pump circumstance and the theology this is wretched radio king charles coronated not only as the king of the civil magistrate but as the head of the anglican communion why because historically in great britain we have seen a different relationship between church and state than what we have known in America. Although we have to admit in Great Britain, practically they have more of a separation of church and state. Nevertheless, the coronation of King Charles is a reminder that coronation happened inside of the church. 
He made vows to make sure that Christian laws and just laws only would be the law of the land, which is precisely what some who would call themselves Christian nationalists are calling for in America. Stephen Wolf, the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism, the leading proponent of what is being dubbed the Christian Prince, an individual who is a part of the civil magistrate who will make sure there is a Christian fidelity in worship and in practice. There are some who are saying, hey, not so fast. We've been there. We've done that. And history tells us it ain't a good mingling. Josh Bice, writing for G3 Ministries, launching a series of articles. This one is titled The Different Shades of Christian Nationalism, reminds us of church history. Let's take a tour, shall we? We see cases of the religious establishment using force to bring about the submission of the people. Now, I know that you could say, well, no, no, we don't mean by force. Well, good. But we're just looking at history. That's what inevitably happened a lot on both sides of the Anglican and the Catholic aisles. This was true during the Reformation. John Rogers, the first martyr, burned at the stake in 1555 under, you guessed it, Bloody Mary. That led to the burning of the Oxford martyrs in the streets. During the days of the Puritan, such unbiblical pressures upon the illegal brand of Christianity, because the Puritans weren't adhering to all Westminster confessional terms, opened the door for the great ejection and persecution. John Bunyan was put in jail for 12 years. Thankfully, we've got a great book out of it. He had to languish there for 12 years. Why? Because he wouldn't conform to the state religion as mandated by their Christian prince, who was the king. And this is what Josh Bice then says. I reject the argument that since mankind is made up of body and soul, the role of the magistrate is to lead his people to the gates of eternal salvation. I would see this as a commission of God's church. In other words, who holds the keys? What are the rules? What are the job descriptions for the realm of the church and the realm of the state? And one of the arguments that is being made And I get it. It has force. Christ is sovereign over all. Therefore, he should be sovereign over this nation. Now, as an aside, I find it interesting. We only tend to focus on the government. If he's sovereign over everything, then he should be sovereign over Hollywood. But I don't see a big movement trying to persuade Hollywood to start making Christian films only. And by the way, who would approve those films? What theology would be acceptable? Then if you say that would be impossible, I say that would hold true also for the government. Who's going to be the Christian prince? What denomination are we talking about here? What's going to if you're a Presbyterian and it's a Baptist who becomes the Christian prince, get ready to baptize your adult children and vice versa. If a Presbyterian becomes the Christian prince, then you need to start baptizing your babies. How is this going to work and play out? Josh Bice, over the last several years, it was right and good for the church to question the authority of the state to enforce lockdown rules and prevent the church from assembling to worship God. I agree because there are realms of jurisdictional authority and the terms of worship, how we gather, when we meet, 
those are all under the jurisdiction of the church. The state should not be intruding. And this is an observation I've noticed. Now, perhaps you could point it out to me. You can send it to me at ideaatwretched.org. I've seen a fair amount of writing how the church is supposed to be engaging with the government and making sure that the government behaves a certain way. But we totally reject the government being involved in the church. Simultaneously, we want the Christian prince civil magistrate to be involved in some matters of the church. Now, time will start to define some of these things. But in the meantime, there are a fair amount of questions that we should be asking. And that's what Josh Pice is doing. It was proper for pastors to speak directly to the civil rulers and call them to repentance. Why would Christians want to make the case that the government should have one hand upon the sword and another upon the keys? Now, to be clear, G3 and Josh Bice, they aren't saying Christians should never be involved in politics. They should never engage in civil matters, voting, etc., and certainly preaching to the civil magistrate. But there should be a jurisdictional line. He writes, I would adamantly oppose the view that Christians should shrink back from the public square and refuse to preach the gospel to everyone, including the civil magistrates. He cites John the Baptist as a good example of that. Got him killed, by the way. Nevertheless, any attempt, writes Bice, to baptize the nations by forcing people by magisterial rule to embrace the label of Christian would be an overreach of governmental authority. This error can find direct connection to a theological error, this is where it gets interesting, of pedo-baptism. Josh Bice is a Baptist. He believes in believer's baptism, and he's identifying some proponents of Christian nationalism as being of the reform bent that believes in baptizing infants. Here's how he explains it. As a Baptist, says Bice, there's an obvious disconnect at this point. This is why Stephen Wolfe, the leading proponent of Christian Christian nationalism said, since I am not credo-baptist myself, I don't have any great personal interest in reconciling Baptist doctrine and Christian nationalism. Such reconciliation might be possible, and I hope that it is, but I'll leave that to the Baptist thinkers. In any event, Baptists can join with non-Baptists in a Christian nationalist project as equal members. Though, I suspect that paedo-baptists would be the most stabilizing force in a pan-Protestant political community. Oh, I see. That sounds to me like we are already identifying what stripe of Christianity should be the one that is used as the litmus test for Christian fidelity. Vice, Christian nationalism leads to the spread of nominal Christianity, which is a cancerous condition that is both dangerous to individual citizens, providing them with false eternal security, and threatens the whole of the civilization under a big government rule. Because some Christian nationalists are saying, hey, look, if it's going to be a Christian nation, even if it is nothing but a cultural Christianity, that is fine. They believe it'll actually lead to those people getting saved. Uh, others would suggest, no, it'll undermine it because we've all experienced those who are under the delusion that they're Christian in name only. Question from Bice. When it comes to ordering a Christian nation under the banner of Christian nationalism, what version of Christianity will be enforced? 
Will it be a minimalist approach to embracing the Apostles' Creed or something more robust, like the Westminster Confession? Who makes this decision on what creed is the law of the land? And he rightly states, and this is, this for me is where the issue always gets settled, this kingdom business. This is why suddenly one kingdom versus two kingdom theology becomes a part of our focus. Because if you believe that you are a part of the kingdom of his Christ and a member of the kingdom that you live in on this earth, you're probably not going to be a fan of Christian nationalism. If you believe in one kingdom theology, no, there's only one kingdom, Christ rules over all, then you're probably going to be bending more toward at least Stephen Wolf's version of Christian nationalism. But here's what Bice writes. The human heart will not be changed by civil legislation. That's not the realm of the civil magistrate. It's the realm of our sovereign God who has the authority to call dead sinners to life by summoning them out of darkness into his marvelous light. The gospel preached results in changed lives and changed lives will result in changed homes. And as families are ordered according to the gospel, it will lead to a positive change within the civil sphere, which showers blessings upon society. However, this common good is not the ultimate aim. The end goal is not Christian nationalism or even what is being called Christendom, dating back to Constantine. Ultimately, the church perseveres in the faith by preaching the gospel of King Jesus and longing for a better city, just as Abraham did, one whose designer and builder is God. Perhaps you were enjoying the coronation of King Charles. It was, whew, it was colorful, it was traditional, and it is a tradition that you and I would do well to study again and ask the question, is this what we want for the church in America? Discuss. This is Wretched Radio. And it's now time for a Wretched News Break here on Wretched Radio. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Well, we start today in the land of the pine. That's North Carolina, where several top health systems have been pushing for irreversible medical interventions like surgeries and hormone therapies on transgender minors. Because, you know, it's always a good idea to make life-altering decisions for children who still think cooties are a thing. On the Lone Star State, a Texas school is under fire, <laughs> rightfully so, for allegedly covering up a disturbing incident, one in which a first-grade girl was reportedly sexually assaulted by multiple boys in her classroom. They have no business knowing about these things in first grade. Oh, that's right. We're supposed to be teaching them these things in first grade. And it seems like the advice of keeping your hands to yourself is just too old school these days. Oh, now a story about reparations from California. How fun. The Reparations Task Force has pr approved a plan to grant $1.2 million to each black resident in the state because nothing says equality like a big old hefty check, right? The initiative aims to address historical racial inequality and the long-lasting effects of slavery and racial discrimination. The task force is still working out the finer details, which as soon as they get those in place, I'll be sure to let you know about them. Now to Germany, where a Christian school is taking its fight against the nation's homeschool ban to the high court. The school argues that the ban violates the fundamental right of parents to choose the best education for their children and religious freedom. <laughs> yeah, it does, exactly. But apparently the German government doesn't believe in allowing parents to parent their children. 
The case could potentially set a legal precedent in the country with strict homeschooling regulations. In Montana, the governor has signed five pro-life bills into law, making significant changes to the state's abortion policies. The laws include ultrasound requirements before abortions and prohibiting abortion after 20 weeks of pregnancy and restrictions on abortion-inducing drugs. Next, a U.S. judge has ruled that a school must allow a Satan Club, which has been sponsored by a pro-abortion group, to be able to operate on the premises of the school. The judge cites that the school cannot discriminate against groups based on their beliefs. Don't you just miss the days when you went to school to, you know, get educated, and if you stayed after school, wasn't to attend a Satan club, it was because you had attention. Ah, the good old days. And in India, mob violence has led to six people killed and 25 churches burned in a predominantly Christian area. It's suspected that the violence was triggered by a land dispute, and that incident just highlights another example of increased persecution against Christians in India. As we tell you so frequently here at Wretched, please make sure that you continue praying for all of our persecuted brothers and sisters abroad. And that's been your latest Wretched News Break. More Wretched Radio straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Important dates in Christian history. 70 AD. Titus destroys Jerusalem and the temple. The separation between Christianity and Judaism deepens, and Christians spread throughout the Roman Empire, spreading the gospel as they go. God uses tragedy to forward His Great Commission. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Today, I'm Lau Thomas. Anybody? This is Wretched Radio. If you watched the coronation of King Charles III, you heard a hymn that dates back to the 4th century. In Latin, it is the Tadeum Laudamus. We praise thee, O God. This is a classic Gregorian chant. It has been presented in various forms over the centuries. It was sung at the coronation of King Charles, and I can't help but wonder if we might want to start considering bringing back a little bit of this stodgy high church liturgy, reason Number one, many kids are seeing the silliness of church. I just saw one. I, it was at not the B, the not the Babylon B. It was a church, I guess. It, it was it, there were there were motorcycles jumping in the air, and they they had this this circus thing where it, it's going around and around, and there's a guy in a cage trying to do flips inside of the cage while it spins, and everybody's going ooh and on. Ah, then a tank, a tank, came out on the church stage with a Chuck Norris impersonator popping out of it. Now, I'm actually hoping I read that headline wrong and it wasn't a church, but it could be, couldn't it? And our kids see that, and not all of them are amused. It's so second rate anyway. And they go sniffing around for something more historical. That is why it's not a massive trend, but it is trendworthy enough that it should cause us to ask some questions like, what might we do to stave off the desire of young people to go find something that connects them to the first century church? I would suggest to you if we, sorry, we we resurrected some of these classic church hymns, maybe they would realize, whoa, I am connected 
to the invisible church, the church of all believers for all time. I do have a history. We just sang something that's like 1,700 years old, dude. Reason number two, it is so slammed with theology. You can't help but have a higher view of God. I'd sing it for you, but Well, that would be torture, and it would undermine the point that I'm trying to make. So let me just read for you the first paragraph. There are multiple. The first paragraph of the Tadeum Laudamus. This this is what we need. Now, I grant you, you might not be a fan of the chant. I got that. But isn't this what we need in order to desire to sing? Knowledge? Don't, don't, Don't we need to know something about God in order to sing about God? Where was, oh, we were, uh, oh, we were in some of, uh, I think the name for it is cutesy schmootsy boutique place where the men tend to sit outside hoping that there were more benches while their wives are on the inside of the store. So there were no benches. I wander in and there was Christian music on. Now, I will admit there was one song that was good. It was Shane and Shane singing, Is He Worthy? Loaded with theology, good contemporary song. But the rest of it, oh, he loves, he loves, he loves, 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 because he loves me. I'm so loved. I feel good because I'm loved. I feel good because I should because I'm loved. And on and on it went. Nothing that told me how he loves me, why he loves me, why I should be singing about his love. Here's the Tadeum Laudamus. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. All the earth worships thee, the everlasting Father. To thee, all angels, cry aloud. The heavens and all the powers therein. On Sunday, we sang a hymn in church. It was the third verse. Can't tell you the title of the hymn. But it's this vivid picture that we see in Revelation of angels staring at God, waiting for him to give a command, to give a word. And when when the Lord looks at them, the hymn writer said, they rejoice. Oh, oh, we get to do something for God. This is this is an allusion to that. All the angels cry aloud, the heavens and all the powers therein to the cherubim and seraphim continually do cry. Holy, holy, holy Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of thy glory. The glorious company of the apostles praise thee. The godly fellowship of the prophets praise thee. The noble army of martyrs praise thee. The holy church throughout all the world doth acknowledge thee. The father of an infinite majesty, thine honorable, true, and only son, also the Holy Ghost, the comforter. Well, there's some theology worth repeating on occasion, isn't it? Maybe, just maybe, we would do well to not reject these things out of hand because, oh, it just becomes dead orthodoxy. No, no, it doesn't. Not to those who are orthodox born-again believers. It's a joy. If you didn't catch any of the coronation of the king, I took the time to read the 51-page outline of the liturgy with explanation from Justin Welby. The coronation of King Charles, it is stated explicitly by the Anglican Communion, is a Christian act of worship. Once again, we see a mingling of church and state. And so that is what I highlighted in this liturgy. Anything that might help us to understand and rightly define the relationship 
between civil magistrates and the church. Now, it was interesting to me in our 21st century ecumenical times, what an effort the Anglican communion made to involve other religions. So they, they had people march in who are Jewish, Sunni, Shia Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist, Hindu, Jain, Baha'i, and Zoroastrian. All were a part of the procession for this Christian service. The procession would be a part of the service. Now, I don't think a procession is needed <laughs> or even maybe wise because it elevates the elder role beyond a servant leader who is still accountable to other believers. Nevertheless, if you believe that this was a Christian act of worship, why would you have all of these religions inside of your processional? Welby explains, this represents the multi-faith nature of our society and the importance of inclusion of other faiths while respecting the integrities of the different traditions. All righty. Justin Welby, behind the pageantry lies another message which the words and ceremonies to come will demonstrate. Our king commits himself through prayers and oaths to follow the Lord he serves in a life of loving service in his role as monarch. I want a king to be godly. I prefer a queen is a born-again believer. I'd love it if the president of the United States and every single person in Congress were a Christian. But do I want a state that has civil magistrates that are involved in any way, shape, or form in the ministry of the keys? Do I want godly laws? See, here's the challenge. Well, we'll actually, Scott Aniel over at G3 wrote an article we'll talk about tomorrow. But there are aspects. He, he rightly points out one of the reasons this conversation on Christian nationalism has become so muddled and contentious. There's a lot of reasons, lack of definitions, etc. But there are many things that people who would call themselves Christian nationalists of the Stephen Wolf variety that I agree with. That, and they would agree with me. So that doesn't make me a Christian nationalist of, of, by their definition. Just because there are some things that I agree where we share commonality, it doesn't mean equality. And that has been a part of the problem uh, that we see with the conversation on Christian nationalism. Back to the liturgy, there was a presentation of the Bible. According to Welby, to accept the gift is for the king to recognize its authority and to accept that constitutionally there should be not be any attempt by human authorities to overrule it. Is that the role of the king? There are people who are saying, yes. Yes, it is. There was an oath. Archbishop of Canterbury said it, and then the king affirmed it. Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Whoa. What laws of God are we talking about? Mosaic? Or just New Testament? Principles from the Old Testament? Dietary? Which rules are we talking about here? And the true profession of the gospel. We know what that challenge is today. Whose version of the gospel are we talking about here? The happy, slappy, prosperity gospel? Or, 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 or a correct version of Jesus Christ dying for sinners, repentance, and faith? And the king then affirmed that this is what you saw over the weekend is a Christian prince personified. 
taking an oath to uphold the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel. Will you do the utmost of your power to maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant reform religion established by law? If that causes you to go, whoa, then I would say you're not a Christian nationalist. If, however, you think, yes, I do believe that the civil magistrate, because Christ is sovereign over all, they should be doing just this, then I would simply ask you, why is it that this 21st century iteration would work out better than all of the varieties we've seen in Western history for the last 600 years? Isn't that the question that we ask communists? Okay, it's never worked before. Why now? And they inevitably say, well, it's because it's not the way that we've done it. That means it's still untried. Questions to be asked and answered next on Wretched Radio. Ah, some good news. Two encouragements from the Tomorrow Clubs. They have hundreds of weekly kids meeting clubs in Eastern Europe. But now they've expanded to Africa and the kids are swarming the Tomorrow Clubs. They have never seen greater attendance than the hundreds of new clubs that they are opening up in Africa. That should encourage all of us. The gospel is going forth and reaching kids in unreached places. Encouragement number two, would you like to become a Tomorrow Club's ministry partner? Your support will help the Tomorrow Clubs open up even more Tomorrow Clubs and reach even more kids with the gospel. Please consider becoming a ministry partner at tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. You know, what used to be a movie is now a sad reality. We're living in a world that's gone absolutely bonkers. So much so that six mads just aren't enough to describe it. Social media may be bombarding us left and right. Our Christian worldview may be under assault. But we have the dynamic duo of Todd Friel and Dr. Nathan Buznitz. And they're coming to the rescue with Wretched Worldview 2. Tackling 22 of those pesky, thorny, contemporary issues through a biblical lens, helping us to defend the biblical view on things like sexuality and gender, critical race theory, modesty and apparel, persecution, secular entertainment, environmentalism, 22 issues to be exact. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to wretched.org, grab your copy of Wretched Worldview 2. And hey, while you're there, snag that study guide too, because it's the perfect companion for navigating this mad, 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 mad world with wisdom and grace. You're familiar with this sound. You're sitting in church. Your pastor is preaching. You have your John MacArthur Study Bible open. The pastor is reading the scripture. And all of a sudden you hear everybody in church turning the page because they all have the same MacArthur Study Bible. Why? Because it is so helpful to be able to read study notes underneath the verses to really grasp what God's Word is trying to teach. How would you like to share the joy of putting a John MacArthur Study Bible into the hands of a believer in the Philippines, they typically make about $12 to $15 per, not hour, per day. It's a luxury item, and it would be such a blessing, $25 a Bible, four Bibles, $100, or perhaps you could send a Bible to a brother or sister in the Philippines every single month. Would you please consider doing that to bring joy to our brothers and sisters? Wretched.org slash Bible.
Titles of Christ In the Bible, Jesus is given many titles that teach us about who He is and what He has done. Jesus is called the heir of all things. All things were created for Jesus. When Christ returns, all creation will be given to Him. And as our mediator, He makes us co-heirs and will share all things with us. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Why have we seen so many bloody religious wars? Perhaps the coronation of the king might answer that question. This is Wretched Radio from the coronation of King Charles III. I, Charles, do solemnly and sincerely in the presence of God profess, testify, and declare that I am a faithful Protestant. I hope so. We we want born-again believers who are ruling. We rejoice when the righteous are in power. We like that. The question, of course, is, is our like a should? Is an ought a should? Back to the oath. And that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments which secure the Protestant succession to the throne, uphold and maintain the said enactments to the best of my power according to law. Maybe that is why we have seen over the centuries in Great Britain and in other Western European nations power struggles between Protestants and Catholics and Anglicans because there was a monarchy that said it's the Protestant religion that should be the religion of the land. The Catholics said, not so fast. It used to be Catholic. And just because King Henry VIII wanted a divorce doesn't mean that the Anglican communion is now the state religion. And so we saw back and forth religious wars taking place because the church wanted state power. And we would do well to learn that lesson. There are other lessons we can learn from the coronation of the king. It was a lengthy high church service. The epistle was Colossians 1, 9 through 17, being read by the Right Honorable Rishi Sunak. Pretty certain he's not an Anglican, but he is the Prime Minister of Great Britain. This is a religious ceremony. How could you have somebody who's not a believer reading Colossians, which, by the way, invokes the name of Jesus Christ? Back to Justin Welby. There was an anointing ceremony, and he claims this was the highlight of the church ceremony, which I don't believe was telecast on television or social media. It was a private ceremony because this was like the biggie. This is what I think is the result of a mingling of church and state. This is Justin Welby. The anointing is the most sacred part of the service. The king is stripped of his royal robes and he dons the colobium sedanus, a sleeveless linen tunic, which corresponds to garments worn in the ancient world by many. And it is not unlike the robes we see clergy wearing today. The king, divested of all worldly honors, is anointed. The king is then vested with the super tunica, an embroidered gold coat. The super tunica is a form of priestly robe. So the king is a priest, which reminds all who see it that the king has been consecrated before God and in service of God. This is church and state 
united. An anointed king. The Archbishop of Canterbury then went about the business of giving him all kinds of things that were symbolic in nature, including a sword. He said, quote, with this sword, do justice, stop the growth of iniquity, protect the holy church of God and all people of goodwill. That's a Christian prince as defined by some Christian nationalists in our country today. So in Great Britain, they have a Christian prince. His name is King Charles III, and he vowed to protect the Holy Church of God. And yet, they didn't want him to have a loud voice in who participated in their religious service. There's so many difficulties with the mingling of church and state. Well be. And so faithfully serve our Lord Jesus Christ in this life that you may reign forever with him in the life which is to come. What? I'm not exactly sure because we Christians, we do get to reign with him. That's staggering. This made it sound like the king on this earth reigns with heavenly King Jesus because of this earthly king's position. There was a ring. There were bracelets that were put onto the king and then a robe. Receive this robe. May the Lord clothe you with the robe of righteousness. Huh. I thought that happened when we got saved. And with the garments of salvation. At this point, the ceremony returns to the sense of ordination of a Christian minister. There it is. King Charles is a Christian minister. He's in the state realm with a foot in the church realm. The robe or mantle the stole royal represent what the king as sovereign has been given by God. Now, this doesn't sound like the divine right of kings, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of feeling that way. The Archbishop of Can Canterbury gave him a glove. Receive this glove. May you hold authority with gentleness and peace, trusting not in your own power, but in the mercy of God who has chosen you. Huh. Jimmy, does that, does that sound like the divine right of kings? It kind of <laughs> sounded that way. It concluded with a blessing from the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is the classic, Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. Then there was a blessing from the Greek Orthodox Archbishop of Thyatira in Great Britain. Then a blessing from the moderator of the free churches. Then a blessing from the Secretary General of Churches Together in England. Then there was a blessing from the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, which is Roman Catholic. It was very, it was as ecumenical as it could be without the Anglican communion totally folding. This, this, this is in part societal pressure. Hey, yeah, okay, so it's, it's an Anglican installed king, but we allow other religions to exist around here. To that I say, well, that's what we've been doing in the United States because of the relationship between church and state in Great Britain. It finally ended with the Eucharist. Everybody took communion, then queen. I didn't think she was going to be called the queen. Queen Camilla was coronated as the queen. And then they waved to the people and went around in carriages while 16 million gospel tracts were passed out. Because of Living Waters and Ray Comfort's effort to use the coronation to get the gospel out. Don't know if you've seen the video. You would do well to go find Living Waters and check out what happened at the coronation. While Charles was being coronated, 
there were Christians who received free gospel tracts from Living Waters getting mobbed, not in a bad way, which which actually can happen. It was in a good way. They couldn't pass them out fast enough. It's not like these people were walking around with gospel tracts going, please, anybody, will you take one of these for me? They were queuing up. They were mobbing them. They were lining up to get gospel literature because it had the mug of King Charles on the front of it. Brilliant. Lessons from the coronation. We would do well to re-examine why it is that we have the form of government that we do. Is it perfect? Of course not. Are the lines always crystal clear between church and state? Of course they're not. It's complicated. I get that. But what we saw in Great Britain was clearly a mingling of church and state. You had the king being coronated inside of a church with a religious Anglican ceremony. This is some sort of like a a mega, sorry, did I say mega? I meant mega church in Texas, full-throated endorsement of Donald Trump during the Sunday church service. It's like, ah. What are we doing with the mixing and mingling of church and state in that regard? For my money, it seems any time that we see a blurring of those lines, we see trouble. And, 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 and I've got to tell you, the church and the age that we are entering into right now, we got enough to deal with when it comes to the subject of persecution. When, if, if we don't watch out but Now, I'm not saying, no, see, this is where it immediately gets problematic. You're going to go, well, that, we're supposed to be silent. Is that what you're saying? No, no, it's not. But I want to make sure that our message is the one that we're supposed to die for. I'm okay with having my head cut off for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not okay with having my head lopped off because I want to have a Christian form of nationalism or government. Do I want everybody in this country to be Christian? Yeah, I actually want them to be Christian. Not a Christian veneer, but actually Christian. And that comes from the proclamation of the gospel. That's why I was so just typical Ray Comfort, getting the gospel out to people during the coronation of a king. Let's take this time to wisely revisit history, but even more than that, let us revisit our Bibles and ask the question, Do we see what we saw in Great Britain anywhere in the New Testament? Do you you see a religious ceremony coronating a king to be head over church and state anywhere in the New Testament? Because that's really where this debate needs to reside. And at this moment, we can have this debate peacefully and lovingly. There might come a time when it gets so hot that we can't. I sure hope that doesn't happen. And there might actually come a time, as Josh Bice rightly pointed out, where division would indeed become necessary. But we don't need more division, do we? Let's talk about this subject lovingly. And until tomorrow, go serve your king. Mm -hmm.